Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Wise Athletes Podcast, where we invite you to join our journey to understand how older athletes can achieve high performance and longevity in athletics. I am Joe Lavelle with Dr. Glenn Winkle, and this is episode 15 of our podcast. Today, I am joined by Sarah Britton, who is the founder and CEO of Colorado Concussion Clinic with offices in Denver and Boulder, Colorado. Sarah has a deep educational and clinical background in treating brain injuries. Joining in on our discussion is Brian Heber, an experienced cyclist and friend who was hit by a vehicle seven years ago while riding his bicycle, resulting in a traumatic brain injury from which he is still recovering. According to the CDC, a concussion is a type of traumatic brain injury, or TBI, caused by a bump, blow, or jolt to the head, or by a hit to the body that causes the head and brain to move rapidly back and forth. The sudden movement can cause the brain to bounce around or twist in the skull, creating chemical changes in the brain and sometimes stretching and damaging the brain cells. Listen in as Sarah explains the common causes and consequences of brain injury, which can be particularly bad for children and older adults. She shares her knowledge about what to look for immediately and in the days after a crash and what to do to heal as fast and as well as possible. After listening to Sarah, you'll be armed with the critical information we all need for quickly assessing damage and helping friends make good decisions in the immediate aftermath of a bike crash. Are they okay to get back on the bike? Should they go to the ER? Should you call 911? Following Sarah's advice will only take a few minutes but might make all the difference. As always, Glenn and I hope you find this information helpful in your quest to become a wise athlete. Well, hello, everybody. Today, we are joined by two people to talk about head injuries. Sarah Britton is the founder and CEO of Colorado Concussion Clinic, a clinic that provides evidence-based care to people with head injuries. Sarah has a Master of Science degree in Communication Science and Disorders from MGH Institute of Health Professions in Charlestown, Massachusetts, and a Bachelor of Science degree in Biomedical Engineering from Washington University in St. Louis. Sarah is also an active member of the Brain Injury Alliance of Colorado's BIAC board. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by Brian Heber, who you all may remember was the subject of the Bike Fit episode. Brian, unfortunately, has some personal experience with head injuries. His was caused by cycling. We'll have Brian tell us a little bit about his story. Before we get to Brian, though, Sarah, can you tell us a little about yourself? Sure. Yeah. So as you mentioned, um, I have a master's degree in speech and language pathology. I started with a speech and language pathology only practice, and our specialty was higher level cognitive rehabilitation. Because that was our niche, we were seeing a lot of people who had sustained concussive injuries or even more moderate injuries. From there, I recognized a need for there to be good comprehensive concussion care. Um, Oftentimes, our patients weren't recovering because they weren't really getting the care that they needed. Um, And as you're going to hear throughout this podcast, it really does take a team to heal a brain injury. And so recognizing that need brought a group of professionals together whose specialty and interest is concussion. Um, And so from there, the concussion clinic was born. At the concussion clinic, we have you know, all of the disciplines that you need from a Western medicine perspective to treat a concussive injury. Well, it sounds like we've got the right person on the podcast today. Brian, how are you doing today? Excellent. Thanks for asking, Joe, and I appreciate participating. My credentials, I guess, would be based on the school hard knock. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, unfortunately. Brian, 
Can you give us, I know that this is a long story, but can you give us the short version to essentially just help us to understand your background in this area? Sure, Joe. Long story short, I think like many of us masters type athletes, uh, we've kind of had an athletic course of life, whether it be playing in, you know, organized team sports, that sort of thing. And certainly I playing football as a, as a youngster through high school, experienced uh, a number of head traumas, you know, some were quote documented as concussions, others probably were not. And during those times, you know, you got hit in the head and you just kind of dust yourself off and get going again because you wanted to be on that first team. So, you know, I experienced a lot of those sort of things. But uh, over my cycling career, I've gone down a number of times. But back in 2014, uh, while on a training ride, uh, I kind of had what I call my coup de gras incident. And that's where I was hit by a trailer that was being pulled by a vehicle and sustained a significant significant head trauma, which resulted in taking me off the bike for a couple of years and actually disabling me. So that's kind of the, the short story of it. And kind of when I look back on it, I think, are there things that I could have done differently? Or are there things that those around me, when I experienced this traumatic brain injury, could have done differently? And so that's really piqued my interest. And certainly, I've gone through a number of, oh, what should I say, modalities in terms of helping to hear, heal my brain injury. So that's one thing. And I, I def- definitely am, am all about prevention. And I'll just say that uh, one of the things that I remember from your story that you told me some time ago was that just like I would have done and probably almost everybody that we know would have done, the people around you said, oh gosh, let's call an ambulance. Let's get you taken back down the hill. And you said, no, I'll be fine. And you got up on the bike and you rode home. Exactly. And I mean, you know, those are the type of things that I want to try to figure out ways to avoid and be able to talk to someone in that situation and be able to hopefully logically and rationally advise them as to why they shouldn't do that. And there was just nobody around me at that time that had those words and not that I wouldn't have fought them, but nonetheless, it probably wasn't the smartest thing to do. Sure. Okay. Well, why don't we get into this? We're going to talk a little bit about how often this happens and why is it, what is this injury that often is invisible and what can be done to try to prevent it besides the obvious things like wearing a helmet? How can you tell if you did get an injury so that you don't feel like what we're recommending is that you go to the emergency room every time you bump your head on the cabinet door? And then we'll hear more about, well, what can be done if you have had an injury? What can be done to try to recover from that. And, you know, things that are really interesting to me are what are the cumulative effects of this, you know, to the extent that it's known. My personal experience is like Brian in that, you know, I grew up playing football. I got my bell rung numerous times, got knocked out at least once that I remember and took five minutes off and went back in to play. 
as a kid, as an adult, I've banged my head many times, all without any obvious damage or, or lasting damage. But yet I worry about the cumulative damage and maybe there is something waiting for me, some consequence that I have to live with as a result of my sins, you know, and what might I do to ward that off or, you know, minimize the effect of that. Anyway, those would be the things that I'd be personally interested in myself. So why don't we get started, Sarah? Great. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how often is this happening and that sort sure. of thing? Do we know? So we don't really have good concrete data. Um, some of the numbers from the CDC in 2014, they report concussions and TBIs as ER admissions, you know, ER visits. And the numbers from 2014 were 2.53 million visits to the ED, of which 812,000 were children. Typically, though, I would say that's a highly underreported number because a lot of people don't end up going to the emergency room, to your point, right? People might hit their head, they might have sustained a concussion, but they don't go to the ER or the ER doesn't pick it up. Why? Because they're more concerned about the person's physical injuries. And so the brain is the last thing to kind of get looked at unless there was, you know, unfortunately in Brian's case, that major incident. So, you know, we really don't have good data on this. But, you know, to your point, most people that you encounter have had some sort of incident with their brain, whether it be when they were kids or adults. So I would say that those numbers are probably sus substantially higher. Sure. Well, what causes it? Uh, and there's probably different levels of injury, mm -hmm. but what is causing the brain injury? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I would say that um, the data right now is pointing to what happens when you have an injury is your axons, which is the, the cells that are in your brain, stretch. Um, and that causes problems with the ion channels within those cells. And so you have intra and extracellular changes, which then can lead to cell death. So it's a pretty complex mechanism. You know, we're only doing these studies, not we, other people who are much smarter than I am, are doing these studies in rats um, and not necessarily humans. But I think that brain injuries are such diffuse injuries, so there's not always a very clear focal injury. And there are three levels. So there are mild traumatic brain injuries, which is synonymous with concussion. They're more moderate and they're more severe. I would caution, though, that a mild traumatic brain injury is anything but mild for somebody that has substantial issues. Um, these are life-changing events that affect a number of different systems. And so I think it's kind of a misnomer to say mild traumatic brain injury. But I guess that implies that it could be even worse than that. Correct. Yes, it can. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I, I would say just to interject real quick is that that's one of the things I struggled with is the the terminology and mm -hmm. uh, you know when you're when you're suddenly faced with this and you hear you know mild traumatic brain injury or kind of, and you're having these symptoms and going through the all these issues you kind of think wow you know that that's that's kind of strange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because oftentimes, you know, a concussive injury won't show on a CT scan or an MRI, right? So oftentimes when you go to the ER and they do scan you, they're really looking for things that are more substantial. Um, and I say more substantial, meaning more life-threatening, right? Like brain bleeds or something like that. And that is what will automatically jump you up to the next category of perhaps moderate or severe. Um, there's also a Glasgow Coma Scale, which is used um, to rate the injuries. But again, that's, you know, not the most um, appropriate measure for something like a concussive injury, because 
somebody who has a concussion will arguably score normal on that measure as well. And so I think that's partly why concussions are so misunderstood and also sometimes misdiagnosed as well. I guess the thing that has always been uh, confusing to me is why does one person get the injury and the next person doesn't get it? It, or, or they did get it, but the symptoms didn't appear or, you know, because they mm-hmm. adapted better right. or, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? So that's a really great question. And if I could answer that well, I would be a millionaire. Unfortunately, we don't really know. We have some really good hypotheses, you know, to your point about multiple injuries. I would say that most people and the data also shows that the more injuries you have, the more likely you are to have a more prolonged recovery. Females in general tend to potentially have a more prolonged recovery as well. Certain age domains or age groups rather can have a more prolonged recovery. But again, they're always outliers. There's also no specific G-force, right? So for example, bike helmets are rated at a certain point when they will break. We can't do this for our brains. There are some interesting studies now that are looking at accelerometers and G-forces and corroborating with video evidence to create bands of probability. So if you sustain, for example, a 4G hit, your probability of getting a head injury is, you know, X percent to X percent. Those are in the works. They're not even out yet. So there's no good data and we don't really know why, although we do have some hypotheses. So I would add to that category for the more prolonged recovery, we talked about multiple head injuries. I would say any previous history of migraine, ADHD, and I'd say those are really the biggest ones. Um, if you have vestibular issues beforehand, so if you're somebody who's prone to be car sick or motion sick, you also have a likely chance of having a more prolonged recovery than somebody who doesn't have that. Does age come into this as as an older brain more susceptible or take longer to heal than a young adult brain kind of thing? So that's a really great question. So most people think, oh, you know, kids, they'll bounce right back. Kids actually have worse outcomes than adults. So 20 to 40 is the prime time to get a brain injury because that's the, the age that they say you have the best recovery patterns. So I would say outside of those ranges... They say it's a bit worse, but we've, we see lots of people in our practice who are within the 20 to 40 who have had substantial head injuries, um, you know, these mild injuries that are life-changing and have changed the course of their life forever. The audience for our podcast is going to be the older, the mm-hmm. 40 plus. Why is being older make you recover less well or less quickly or more susceptible to the problems in the first place? Does anybody know? No, not really. Um, I would say that plasticity over time perhaps decreases, but our brains are remarkable. Um, I think to tell somebody that, you know, because they're over 40 and they've gotten a head injury and they won't recover is just one of the worst things you could probably do. It's such a disservice to the patient because we've seen plenty of people in that age group, especially the athletes who are motivated, get better. Well, so let's talk about, so if you have a brain injury, mm-hmm. what happens? What do you, what, how do you, what happens to you? What are the symptoms that you Sure. As, as a victim, what symptoms do you get? Because I, yeah. I think that the answer is that you might get nothing right away. Mm-hmm. You could be injured. You feel completely fine. So in the situation like Brian, who gets up and we, Brian, we don't know whether you felt like hell, but you just said, I'm fine. Or whether you actually felt fine, other than maybe beat up a little bit from having been run over by a horse trailer. 
Well, having the opportunity to look back and, you know, say, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, there were definitely signs that I wasn't right. <laughs> and yeah. I think the the biggest biggest part for me is I didn't feel secure on the bike. I didn't feel like I was making good sound judgments that like, you know, on a high speed descent or something like that. I mean, I, I felt like I was, you know, really having trouble with bike control. And the other thing I noticed too, physiologically was my heart rate. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden my heart rate's all over the place and, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not making a big effort or anything, and yet my heart rate is sky high. And mm -hmm. so there were definitely signs that now that I look back that I I should have recognized and should have heeded, but yeah. I didn't. Well, so why don't we, uh, Sarah, get from you, what symptoms might you get right away? I mean, the, the UCI just came out with a, a protocol for evaluating pro cyclists who have had a crash. And so there are things that they do immediately, mm -hmm. balance and asking questions and things like that, mm -hmm. That so that there, there could be immediate symptoms. But then there's also things that don't show up right away. Mm -hmm. If you could kind of walk us through that. Sure. And I'm going to say, too, that um, I think this is a good point to talk about, that you don't need to hit your head to have a concussion or a brain injury. And you also don't have to lose consciousness. I would say those are really two really big myths about it. The ACRM, which is the Academy of Rehabilitation Medicine, and I'm forgetting a word, but um, they define a brain injury. One of the definitions is any altered mental status at the time of the event. So kind of what Brian talked about, right, was just feeling kind of out of it and not feeling secure and not making good decisions. I would say that those are great warning signs um, that something has happened. And oftentimes, too, those are the biggest indicators that we see from our patients in the clinic that they've had a head injury. So when you have a brain injury, there are four main groups of symptoms. The first is cognitive, the second is sleep, the third is emotional, and the fourth is physical. What shows up immediately is going to be very person-dependent. I would say the physical realm encapsulates so many different things, right? You could have headaches, you could have light sensitivity, you could have changes in your vision. So words could be moving on the page when you read. Uh, you can have changes in your balance system. So kind of what Brian alluded to as well was not feeling as secure. You can have these impacts to your vestibular system. Um, and your vestibular system is what's responsible for our brains knowing where we are in place and time. So those are the four main categories. I would say that right away, you know, the physical ones are probably going to jump out the most. I think over time, as physical pain goes away, you know, you recognize things like cognitive changes right? Maybe you're not as apt at or quick to be able to make dinner for your family or complete your job, or your brain just feels tired. You can't get your through your day. You know, the sleep piece as well. Sleep can be, you're either really tired and sleep way too much, or you have trouble falling asleep, or you have trouble staying asleep. Um, kind of any disrupt, disruption in sleep, I would say is a good sign as well. And then I guess the last piece that we'll talk about is the emotional side of things. So oftentimes after a brain injury, people's emotions can be on the surface um, and they're called what's or they can be what's called emotionally labile. So for example, they might laugh at inappropriate times or cry at inappropriate times or get frustrated more easily. And those are all really common symptoms of brain injury. 
That being said, by no means do you have to have all of the symptoms for it to be considered a concussive or a brain injury. You can just have some, and that's not uncommon as well. I think the only rule of brain injury is that no two brain injuries are the same. And Sarah, just a comment. I mean, I you know, you kind of went through a list of of issues, challenges, symptoms, et cetera. And, you know, I was sitting here thinking I could about check all those boxes. Yeah. And it also for me, um, you know, there were instant things I noticed, but there were things that through the the course of you know, the, the early days of my injury and early weeks of my injury, um, those things could ebb and flow. And, sure. you know, things that it just had to be situational for me to notice them. Absolutely. That's a really great point, right? You might have a good night's sleep and so things might feel better. Um, you might walk into the grocery store and end up in tears because it's just super stimulating and overwhelming and, you know, it's not a great day. So one of the things too after a brain injury is you no longer have your cognitive reserves. And what I mean by that is when we don't have a brain injury, we devote so much of our brain to thinking. We devote so much of our brain to, you know, the physical side of things. And then we have this tank of reserves. So if you get home after a day of work and your partner says, "Hey, let's, you know, go out and get dinner." Not right now because of the pandemic, but you know, bear with my analogy. Um, you're able to do that. When you have a brain injury, those reserves are completely gone. A brain injury is an injury of effort. So everything that you're doing in the day takes so much more energy and mental capacity to get through, including the physical things. So like reading, going for a workout, you brought up, Brian, the kind of autonomic dysfunction that can happen. And I think especially in athletes, it's sometimes a really overlooked piece. And what I mean by autonomic dysfunction is your heart rate doesn't respond appropriately, right? You walk up a flight of stairs and all of a sudden you're at 160 beats per minute and typically you would be at 70. It's your, your body systems are just kind of all a mess. And so getting treatment for those things can be really, really important and crucial, especially for athletes. And I think it's also, I mean, to echo what you were saying, Sarah, about the cognitive reserve, um, you know, that's something that became, you know, very real to me because as a, you know, master's endurance athlete who, you know, does a lot of crazy things on, on the bike and pushes the body and so on and so forth, I was, I mean, just floored by the energy that it was taking just to do the most simple things. And yep. I couldn't understand why I was so exhausted. Absolutely. Um, I had a patient that I worked with and she and I would talk about not losing her marbles. So I would say at the start of the day, you have 20 marbles. You know, cooking breakfast might take one. Doing a work task might take five. But once your marbles are out for the day, you're done. So you can't lose all your marbles. That's funny. Yeah. But useful. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I love that. I would, And I wish somebody would have told me that somewhere along the way. Right. Yeah. And so part of our team is our speech and language pathologists like myself. And so in cognitive rehab, that's exactly the types of things that we're doing to help people um, because it's not always apparent, right? Like you said, problem solving becomes a challenge. And so coming up with these creative tools and strategies to allow yourself to be able to function better is really challenging on your own. And so that's where a good cognitive therapist can help you with those types of things. And that's something that I struggled with. 
it's hard to shift your brain into thinking that you need to do these things differently now. Totally. And so, you know, having those reminders of saying, well, you know, I used to be able to do it this way and Mm -hmm. I didn't need to write stuff down or I didn't need need to set reminders in my phone or, you know, what have you. And so, you know, having those compensating tools is, Mm -hmm. is very important. It is. Yeah. And I think, you know, to your point, it's, it's really challenging, especially for somebody who's such a high performer to, you know, recognize that, hey, I I need to do these things that I didn't want to do. And it's, it's very humbling. And I think really hard to do that as well. Um, And I, you know, I tell my patients that, that this isn't a forever thing. You know, oftentimes with a brain injury, things that were automatic and easy are no longer automatic and you have to think through everything. And so the goal is by using those tools and strategies, you're kind of retraining your brain for that automaticity again. Well, do we have anything specifically that we could tell people if you're with some people and somebody goes down mm-hmm. that they should, before just letting that person just get up back on their bike and, and head off, is there something they should look for, something they should say to that person? Sure. So I would, um, just a quick anecdote before this, I would say that in my experience, the people that I've seen that have gotten up immediately after their injury and continued to do the activity um, have actually had more significant problems in some areas. Um, And so I would caution that if it's not the end of the world to stop your ride and see how you're doing, I would 100% encourage you to do that and probably even get a ride down if there's any sort of question if you've sustained a head injury or not. I would say that the most valuable thing you can do is to know your riding partners. Having a good conversation with them, you'll be able to tell if something's off. I would also ask specific questions, right? I would ask if they're oriented to time, date, place, right? The basic things. Things that in my mind, if they didn't know the answers, I would be calling 911 right away. If they've lost consciousness, I would also say that that's a reasonable time to, you know, be calling 911 and definitely not letting them ride down. A really big red flag is if somebody loses consciousness, comes back, and then loses consciousness again, oftentimes that signals something even more traumatic going on in the brain, like a brain bleed. Um, And I would say there is like, no questions, stop what you're doing, call the ambulance, get them out of there. Um, That being said, there are also simple things that you can do, right? Like have the person stand on one foot. How do they feel balance-wise, right? Riding a bike takes a lot of balance. Um, Also a lot of processing, right? You're, You're going pretty quickly. And so having your brain be on is, is needed. So asking basic questions, have them balance on one foot, have them close their eyes and see how they feel. Do they feel dizzy? Do they feel out of it? You know, those are really, I would say, the biggest things, but knowing the people that you're with, yeah. And how would you distinguish between calling 911 and calling the guy's wife to come get him? Yeah. So I would say if there's any loss of consciousness or that loss of consciousness in and out, you know, those are to me 911 events. If they're just feeling a little out of it, I would say that calling the person's partner to have them pick them up and then monitor them is totally reasonable as well. You know, I, I would say that going to the emergency room to be cleared for a more severe injury is an important thing to do. But like you said, you know, not every small incident is going to be something that requires an emergency room visit. Yeah. Is there a timing that matters here? I understood if you have a brain bleed, then yes. But mm-hmm. if it's just a mild concussion, which doesn't mean not important, but just not life-threatening, yeah. does time matter? 
if you don't go, if you wait and get an appointment with your doctor three days later, is that a mistake rather than going to the emergency room right away? So I don't think so. Um, And I would say through no fault of their own, emergency room physicians oftentimes might not be up to date with the most current concussion literature because it's changing all the time. So most people think, you know, I've had a concussive injury. I don't want them to sleep that night. Rest is best. I'm going to sit in a dark room for a week. And the reality is we know that that's no longer true to get the best outcomes for the person. So I think following up with your physician, you know, in three days is, is totally reasonable to do. I would caution you from going into a dark room and sitting and thinking that that will be um, a good thing to do. There's actually been some really interesting studies out of um, SUNY Buffalo where they take athletes within 96 or even 72 hours after their injury and get them on a treadmill. I'm not saying go work out within 48 hours. I am saying that it's reasonable to do some sort of physical exercise and cognitive exercise as long as it doesn't worsen your symptoms. So for example, if you're out for a walk and you're starting to get dizzy and a headache, you've done too much. So this is oftentimes where seeing a concussion expert who can help determine, okay, you know, you need to be exercising at this percent of your heart rate is a reasonable thing to do. But, you know, to your point, Joe, I think waiting to go see your PCP within three days is totally reasonable. Okay, great. Let's talk a little bit about what we can do to prevent it, if anything, other than the obvious things like, you know, wear a helmet, Mm -hmm. uh, try not to crash. I mean, we're not here recommending that people don't ride a bicycle. Correct. We're just saying, look, you should wear a helmet. And if you can learn how to handle your bike well and ride with people that are also good at handling their bike to minimize the crashes, being careful what sorts of uh, streets maybe you are riding on so that, you know, we don't have conflicts with uh, heavy, fast-moving automobiles. But is there anything else, exercises for the brain, having a stronger Mm -hmm. neck, or, you know, is there anything? So I love that question. Uh, There was a study done uh, with a professional football team where they did Preseason vision therapy. So, vision therapy is one of the modalities that is used to treat concussions if you have visual changes or ocular motor changes. And it was shown that doing preseason vision therapy reduced the number of concussions. It's a small study, but I think it makes sense. And I would also take that as a word of caution, right? They're football players. So, perhaps increasing your peripheral vision, you reduce the number of collisions that you have where you don't see what's coming. That being said, I think being a healthy person is honestly the best thing that you can do. You know, having a good diet, exercising regularly, just all of the things that you would do in general for good brain health. Unfortunately, there's no easy way to prevent concussions. Is there anything that people should do or it could help if they did it? Maybe we're not 100% certain. You know, like I've heard of people getting scans before they have concussions and then they can get a scan after they've had an injury to see if Mm-hmm. something has changed? Is there any of those kinds of things that make sense? So those things are provide really pretty pictures. Um, unfortunately, we don't know enough about to the brain to say, okay, well, this area was injured, so we're going to do this therapy. Having those images wouldn't change the way that we treat the person. You know, I think data can be a good thing. So some baseline testing is, you know, very reasonable. But again, it's not perfection. Is it better than nothing? Sure. Um, But as an adult, you can also report, you know, I feel normal. I don't feel normal. This is going on. So I have mixed emotions. I myself don't have any baseline testing. I'm a super active person. Um, It's not something that I would see as imperative to treatment and recovery. Would you say that 
if somebody has a head injury, that if they are being honest with themselves and they know the list of symptoms that they would be able to tell that they've got it? Or could it be so subtle that, or maybe even that the injury keeps them from being able to recognize that they have Mm -hmm. an injury? Yeah. So I would say that most people probably have insight and awareness to it. I would say when you have a more severe brain injury, that's when you have issues with the insight and awareness. I would say that most people can probably recognize a concussion within themselves. If it is so mild that they're not recognizing anything, they're likely in the group that they'll recover without issue, you know, within 10 days. So yeah, I think, you know, being a critical human and asking to your your friends, your riding friends, your partner, have you noticed any changes in me? That's also a really great question because oftentimes those people might have some insight that you don't. Yeah, that sounds smart. So in your practice, what are the most common ways that you've seen that people end up with some head injury? Uh, I mean, I guess there's cycling, but mm-hmm. you know, what else? Slipping on ice, car accidents, yeah. what do you see? Yeah, so actually, uh, that's a great question, right? Because everybody always thinks, oh, we see only athletes. And the reality is most concussive injuries are sustained by slip and falls, um, then motor vehicle crashes, then all the other things. So I mean, we've seen the whole gamut, right? We've seen people that have fallen on ice. We see people that are in motor vehicle crashes. We've seen bike crashes. You know, we've seen other just random incidences of, you know, things happening. I I treated a woman who had um, an air conditioning unit fall on her head when she was walking down the street. This was when I was working in Boston. Right. So, you know, I would say slip and falls and motor vehicle crashes and then recreational activities. Okay. Well, maybe you can give us just the high points of what is done to help somebody? Now, sure. They've got a brain injury. The brain has been stretched, or, you know, and there's leaking. And, and so it's doing its healing thing. But what is what are you advising or helping the person to do so that they either get out of the way and let the brain do its thing or perhaps actually help the brain to heal itself? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would say anybody that has symptoms after 10 days, it's worth following up with um, a, a concussion person. Um, somebody who's, whose specialty is treating concussion. And at our practice, we have um, neurooptometry, we have cognitive therapists, we have physical therapists who specialize in concussion. So they're looking at autonomic dysfunction, your cervical spine, and how that plays into your vestibular system. They're looking at your vestibular system as well as your ocular motor system. So I would say that when you come into our practice or you know, perhaps any concussion experts practice, they're going to be evaluating all of the systems that could potentially be impacted from a crash or from an injury, right? After a bike crash. Once we have that, then we will recommend therapy is needed. So for example, if you do have vestibular issues, you'll go see our PT. If you do have autonomic dysfunction, you'll go work with the PT to fix that. If you're having cognitive changes or trouble getting through your day, you'll go see the cognitive therapist as well. You know, the physicians can help with management of things like headache and sleep. And um, those are, you know, much more nuanced than let's go do therapy. There are lots of supplements that can be tried, um, you know, medications if, if the situation warrants it, um, although we try to steer away from that. But it really does take a whole team to treat these more substantial concussive injuries. I would say in our experience, when you are kind of a higher level athlete, it's oftentimes physical therapy that is your biggest bang for your buck, so to speak, because there are often subtle changes in your vestibular and ocular motor systems. And so working with a concussion physical therapist is a really, really helpful thing. So Sarah, I have a follow-up question on kind of what you went through sure. right there is, you know, 
in, in my personal case, you know, I'm six, seven years out. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, so some of my wonderment sometimes is, are there still things that can be done to help me? Or am I too far out of the initial injury, if you will, to benefit mm-hmm. from anything that your practice would have to offer? Yeah, it's honestly, Brian, never too late. We actually saw a gentleman who was five or six years post a moderate brain injury from a bike crash. He was unable to work. He came to us. He did some treatment. He was able to go back to work in some capacity. He wasn't working at what he was doing previously, but he was able to reenter the workforce. And as you can imagine, right, just the benefits of that are, are massive, even on somebody's mental health. But even from the physical perspective, right, if there are still nuances or changes in the ocular motor or vestibular system or the cognitive system, those things can all still be addressed. It's it's honestly never too late. Our brains are really amazing. Great. That's 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 good to hear. Yeah. Getting back to the treatment thing, I, I mean, is there some general rules of thumb? You know, I've heard things over the years like, oh, you want to make sure you get sleep. And I guess this is really for the person who maybe is thinking, hmm, maybe I did get some kind of damage. You know, what could they just do in this week time frame to 10 days, I guess you mentioned, mm-hmm. where they're trying to recover? What should they focus on to try to help them to get over it? Is it, you mm-hmm. know, sleeping? It's not exercising too hard, but you've said do some exercise as long as mm-hmm. it doesn't make the symptoms worse. Mm-hmm. Maybe managing their stress. What, what would you say to them? Yeah. I mean, all of the things that you just mentioned, Joe, honestly, you know, getting out and going for a walk, even if it's 20 minutes a day, um, or if you're able to tolerate more than that, that's great. If you can go, you know, I would encourage you to not put yourself in a position where you could get another injury. Consequences of that for adults are less than they are for kids, but they're not nothing. So, you know, I would perhaps caution getting back on your bike if you're feeling a little funny, um, but doing things like walking or maybe like even a light jog. Or an indoor trainer. Oh, absolutely. Exactly. Yep. Maybe with like pads on either side, (laughs) just in case. (laughs) No, that sounds like a great idea. You know, sleep is really important. So making sure that you're getting, you know, if you're an eight hour sleeper before, you might need 10 hours now, making sure that you're eating adequately. I think that's really important as well. And yeah, getting, getting some sort of return to normalcy as you're able to tolerate it. I also think that there's no problem with coming in earlier than that 10 day mark. I would just say that the 10 days is when you definitely want to come in and be seen. I think about concussion treatment like I do early intervention for children who are who are having trouble reading. We don't know who's going to be on like a typical trajectory and who won't be. So we would rather see people in our clinic even if it's just for one visit where you're we're giving you education, where we're giving you homework and exercises to be doing on your own. If that's all you need, that's awesome. We never want to see you again. But at least we're catching the people who might be set up for a more prolonged recovery. And then we can really make the biggest difference in their care. Great. Well, that's a good tip. In terms of long-term issues, does, do we know anything about having concussions or maybe you know many concussions sets you up for higher chance of dementia or sure. you know, things like that? Yeah, this is another hot topic. So CTE, right, with the NFL, cr- chronic traumatic encephalopathy, right, or, or Alzheimer's. I'm going to say that you can find data to support that multiple concussive injuries does cause long-term changes. I would say the scariest data that I've seen is on kids under the age of 12 who have actually sustained repetitive sub-concussive blows to the head. So not concussive events, um, but just blows. 
they have shown a correlation between that and CTE later in life. Um, that to me is the scariest thing. I think if as an adult, if you've had a head injury, would I be worried about Alzheimer's? Hmm, probably not. Um, especially, you know, you guys are all athletes and are in pretty great shape and obviously care for your bodies and your minds. But when you're talking multiple head injuries, is there a risk? Sure. The data is honestly kind of inconclusive there. Okay. But perhaps it's worth considering that there's more than just having to be off the bike for a week. If you hit your head, it might be adding up to a bigger, yeah. more permanent problem in the future. Right. I mean, I would say if you know, you're up in the five to 10 range of concussions, you might perhaps try swimming or a different sport. Right. <laughs> that, that kind of piques my interest because I'm, I'm definitely into the double digits. Yeah. Yeah. I, we definitely can have a conversation offline, Brian. I'm happy to share with you what I know and, and see if we can help. So I know that we're short of time here. Uh, I just wanted to ask one last thing. And that sure. was, I know that there's lots of myths and bad information out there. Is that, and you've mentioned some of them already. Is there anything else that you just think they should know? Yeah. So just to hammer home what I've mentioned kind of throughout the podcast. So you don't have to hit your head, right? You can have a whiplash kind of injury. So let's say that you get really jolted on your side and your brain just kind of goes back and forth without hitting the ground. That can cause an injury. If you think about a tomato in a mason jar, if I shake the jar, the tomato is going to be damaged, but the jar will be fine. You do not have to lose consciousness to sustain a concussion or a head injury. Another big misconception. Rest is not best. So I think, you know, within 24 to 48 hours, getting the sleep you need is totally reasonable. But after that, you don't want to be sitting in a dark room. And I think the other piece of it is that there's nothing you can do, right? That you'll be fine in 10 days or whatever it is. But the reality is there is a lot of treatment that you can proactively be doing to heal your brain. All right. Yeah. Hopefully this is information that people will listen to and, and take action on. I know that I will. Sarah, thank you so much for your time. Brian, thanks for joining me again. Absolutely, Joe. You're welcome. Happy to be a resource if needed. Yeah, absolutely. This is, this is great information and uh, I think is a good good primer for, you know, the, the wise athlete to have uh, this type of information. I'll wrap up here. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for listening in to our discussion with Sarah Britton. Check out our show notes to find contact info for Sarah and the Colorado Concussion Clinic. If you head over to wiseathletes.com, you can send us a question to address on the podcast, see all of our episodes, subscribe to our podcast, and you can sign up for our newsletter. If you are on social media and enjoyed this episode, please post about it. That would be a great help. Thanks again.